Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Is the Stage Too Big for the Actors? When Time Will Have Reached Its Fulfillment. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, January 2nd, 2011. Christmas is past. The new year is future. It's that season of year when we live with a heightened sense of the passage of time. Our clocks and calendars remind us that time never stands still. It moves inexorably forward. But where is time going? Despite their differences, both real and imaginary, on one fundamental point of reality, science and Christianity agree that time had a beginning and that time will come to a definitive end. The devil is in the details, of course, and when it comes to those details, faith and science offer radically different stories about the significance of our beginning and end. For scientists, and we should add for many believers, the beginning started with the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. As for the end, in about 5 billion years, the sun will expand into a red giant 10 million times its present volume and incinerate the earth. Since the sun itself is about 4.6 billion years old, we're about halfway to the end of planet earth. And so writes the particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, it's as sure as can be that humanity and all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos. But the end of the earth is nothing, astronomically speaking, compared to the end of the entire cosmos. My friend and solar physicist Charles tells me that physicists are divided about the future of the cosmos, but equally bleak. If the expansion of the Big Bang continues to propel everything outward, our galaxies will fly apart forever, although individual galaxies will collapse into black holes. But if the forces of gravity prevail, the universe will eventually reverse its expansion and collapse into what he calls a big crunch. In his new book, The Language God Talks on Science and Religion, the Jewish novelist Hermann Walk asks whether this is by itself an adequate story. Fifty years ago, when we, he was researching his books, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance, Walk met the famous Caltech physicist Richard Feynman. Do you know calculus? Feynman asked Walk. You had better learn it. It's the language God talks. Walk tried, but he never did learn calculus. But he later had two more conversations with Feynman at the Aspen Institute. Walk has been ruminating about those conversations ever since and in particular about an off-the-cuff remark that Feynman made in a television interview, which later became a famous soundbite. In the interview, Feynman said that, quote, it doesn't seem to me that this fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals, 
and all the different planets and all these atoms with all their motions and so on. All this complicated thing can be merely a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. The stage is too big for the drama. No, said Herman Walk, who amicably objected, the stage is not too big. He might not know calculus, he admitted, but he insists that he knows God's other language in the Talmud. Besides, says Walk, if science is hardly immune to our messy human drama of doubt, error, vanity, ignorance, ridicule, and politics, science depends upon the faith in the opinions of elite authorities, which opinions sometimes disagree even about fundamental matters. It can build the atomic bomb, but provide precious little moral wisdom about its use, or explain the magic of genetics, but not how to raise a teenager. Has the last 15 years really been such a vastly drawn-out, complex, purposeless nonsense, asked Walk? He responds, I'll venture that not even a solid savant like Steven Weinberg can believe that not in his innermost soul. Art, human joy and sorrow, the mystery of human consciousness, the beauty and terror we experience in creation, all these hints do not prove anything, but nevertheless suggest that our human drama does indeed have an overall plot and author. The readings for this week retell this alternate story about beginnings and ends. The first sentence in the Gospel of John echoes the first sentence of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 reads, In the beginning was the word. Why does John do this? What's he saying to us? Beyond, beyond the obvious literary affinity, what's the deeper connection between the Jesus of John in the God of Genesis. John 1, 1-18 makes two connections between Jesus and Genesis, which together constitute the sum and substance of Christianity's alternate story of the cosmos. John links Genesis and Jesus in order to connect creation and redemption. Jesus embodies the revelation of the invisible God, and he also enacts the redemption of the material creation. He is the infinite and eternal Logos who entered time and became finite flesh. Just as God's glory inhabited the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, so too his glory tabernacled in the fleshly body of Jesus. In Jesus, God created the world, says John, and in Jesus, God redeems the world. The Apostle Paul makes a similar point in the epistle this week with equal literary flourish. In the original Greek text, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14 is one long ponderous sentence that piles clause upon clause. 
Mrs. Tilly, my ninth grade English teacher, would definitely give Paul a failing grade for grammar. If you notice, different translations of the Bible struggle to punctuate Paul's syntax. But like John, beyond his tortured prose, Paul connects creation and redemption. Whereas John and Genesis begin at the beginning of creation, Paul imagines a scenario in Ephesians 1-4 before the creation of the world. Although this sounds like science fiction, I take his words at face value. The universe is about 15 billion years old, and even though that's an unimaginably large number, it's still a finite number. We're tantalized what came before the beginning of space and time. And when in the distant but certain future the universe flies apart from a continued expansion of the Big Bang or collapses into a big crunch from the forces of gravity, what comes after the end? Paul says that the chronological march of clocks and calendars started by the Big Bang is going somewhere rather than nowhere. He says that time itself is to progressing toward what he calls a fulfillment. He tells the Ephesians that the mystery of God's will, hidden in eternity past, is revealed in the first century Jesus. All creation will receive its redemption when God brings all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Paul's remarkably comprehensive vision embraces all space and all time. The future redemption of the original creation is so central to his thought that he repeats these ideas in nearly identical language in four additional epistles besides Ephesians. It's like Paul had a computer and did a cut and paste of his thoughts to five different churches. The ultimate destiny of all creation is liberation and freedom, adoption and redemption. The scale and scope of this future hope encompasses the whole creation, Romans 8. God created all things in heaven and on earth, Colossians 1. He seeks the worship of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, Philippians 2. He will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Colossians. Since he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven on earth, Ephesians 1, then of course God delights in bestowing his fatherly favor on the whole human family in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 3. Paul's incremental logic is palpable. Redemption is the destiny of each person, every nation, all creation, and the whole cosmos. Not only on earth, but, says Paul, under the earth and in heaven. God was in Christ, says Paul, reconciling the cosmos to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 The creation of Genesis will meet its redemption in Jesus. 
This is an affirmation of religious faith, of course, and not an assertion of scientific fact. But as the novelist Herman Walk reminds us, scientific facts alone do not always make for a completely satisfying story. For books this week, I review Chalmers Johnson. The title of the book is called Dismantling the Empire, America's Last Best Hope. New York Metropolitan Books, 2010, 212 pages. If you can't read Chalmers Johnson's Blowback Trilogy, three books, the first of which is called Blowback, the second of which is called The Sorrows of Empire, and the third book called Nemesis. This collection of essays provides an adequate summary of his dire analysis. The essays in this newest book were originally written from about 2004 to 2009, so they're a bit dated and sometimes repetitive, but they still convey Johnson's signature wallop Blowback is a term originally used by the CIA in reference to the unintended consequences of our government's covert activities, such as the 9-11 disaster. You don't have to agree with Johnson that George Bush was a sophomoric ignoramus, that he was likely the single worst president in the history of the American Republic, or that we should abolish the CIA. But he does make you wonder how our country can sustain what he calls base world. A half a million soldiers and dependents on a thousand bases in 175 countries around the world. We now live in a permanent war economy that's impossible to dial back, which is to say that we have chosen what he calls the suicide option. There's an inherent contradiction in hypocrisy, says Johnson, in trying to have both a domestic democracy and a foreign imperialism. In his view, we're likely to lose both as we drift into insolvency and end not with a nuclear bang, but with a financial whimper. Nor should we place much hope in the timid efforts of President Obama there is one glimmer of hope in the possibility that journalism can keep citizen, can help citizens perform elementary oversight of our government. Indeed, many of these essays are like extended reviews of books that Johnson finds compelling, like Steve Cole's study of Afghanistan called Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, or Tim Weiner's book Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. There are also two historical examples for contemplation. Britain repudiated reckless and unsustainable imperialism in favor of a much smaller democracy. Rome, on the other hand, chose imperialistic empire and paid the consequences. When you get to the last three pages of this book in Johnson's 10 Steps Towards Liquidating the Empire, it all feels not only compelling, but also deeply discouraging and downright futile. The author is Chalmers Johnson. The title of the book, Dismantling the Empire.
For film this week, I review A History of Christianity, the first 3,000 years from the year 2010. Most people will have neither the time nor the inclination to plow through Diarmaid McCulloch's 1,000-page masterpiece, The History of Christianity. But this masterful summary by the BBC makes a wonderful substitute. I enjoyed watching the series in my adult Sunday school class. There are six DVDs, each of which is one hour long, in which features a surprisingly camera-friendly McCulloch narrating the Christian story on location all around the world. The six episodes are as follows. Early Christianity, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, the Reformation, Protestantism, and the Evangelical Explosion, and then finally what he calls God in the Dock, an episode on secularism. Scholars will quibble about some details. For example, there's no mention of Aquinas or even Mary in the episode upon, on Catholicism. But this is a wonderful overview of the Christian story and all of its geopolitical and theological variety by one of the world's best historians. I highly recommend it. The title, A History of Christianity, The First 3,000 Years, by the BBC and featuring Oxford historian Diarmaid McCulloch. And finally for this week, for poetry we feature a piece by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a poet, essayist, farmer, and novelist, born in 1934. The title of his poem this week is called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought or grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 2nd, 2011. And Happy New Year and Merry Christmas from Journey with Jesus. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.